Praise the Lord, that is just outstanding. Doesn't that make you want to worship more? Uh, that song is called Dwelling in Beulah Land. And thank you for Gerald and Bruce and Connie. Uh, what an awesome instrumental combination there from them. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Our text today will be studying again from Colossians chapter 2. And you can begin to turn there now. I'd ask that um, once again we begin in prayer. Lord, you know our very hearts. You know all of our thoughts, Lord God. You know what is in us. Perhaps, Lord, that's much of the reason that you did not entrust yourself to men. You knew the thoughts of man. Lord God, Open our hearts today to you. Open our hearts to your word. Lord God, bless us as we hear about Jesus, as we hear about Christ. Lord, bless our time. Bless our minds. Bless our hearts. Make us more like Jesus. As we open your word now, I pray that you will guide us, guide our understanding, guide our thoughts. And Lord, guide all that happens here in this church. And may you use it, Lord God, to magnify the holiness of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I don't believe it will be any surprise to most of you that there is a desire, probably more accurately a demand of our culture today, to experience what is known as the supernatural and divine. The expectation of society has become that if you're going to consider yourself spirit-filled, you're going to have to provide some kind of miraculous evidence to legitimize that. What I'm saying is, is that if you're going to have credibility in the fact that you have a relationship with God, or... If you are going to have any legitimacy that what you're speaking about God is true, you then are also going to have to authenticate that by displaying visible and supernatural manifestations of power. People want to test God. We've already talked about this in some depth in previous weeks. This principle has now become foundational in doctrines of many of the uh, divisions in the modern church. If you really know God, if your church is going to be spirit-filled, then many say, we want to see it. Prove it to us. And if you can't prove it to us, well then we'll just go somewhere where they will. That got me into thinking about Jesus' ministry. And I pulled up just a number of random texts from the Gospels of what Jesus experienced when he was in ministry and they were testing him. This first one is from Matthew 12, verses 38 and 39. It says that some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves... For a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it 
but the sign of Jonah the prophet. In Matthew 16, it says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Others, it says, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. John chapter 2, this is immediately after Jesus had cleansed the temple. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing such things? And finally, one more, John chapter 6, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Is that true? So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? This is what they asked of Jesus. People demand spontaneous and supernatural evidences of God. Personally, I believe this is the precise reason that God provides so little. I mean, I can be very honest. I've never seen anything in my life that I could attribute to supernatural and visible evidence. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't believe that God heals. I very much do believe that he heals and that he heals miraculously. Also, I don't want to say that I haven't experienced what might be kind of considered spiritually paranormal. Kind of spiritual situations that you know there's a presence, that you know something's happened for a specific reason. That's a separate topic for a separate day. But I have to, have to say that I've never seen a person or an instance where there has been a person who's been dead and embalmed for three days who then stood up out of the casket at his or own, her own funeral. I've never seen a person who had had their leg amputated due to diabetes have that limb fully and completely restored. And I've never witnessed an unlearned person break out in perfectly fluent Portuguese as my wife is standing beside me and have her say, that person there is speaking the wonderful things of God in perfect Portuguese. That's what we saw in Acts. That is what this gift of tongues is. When people who were unlearned of a language suddenly were speaking great things of God for all to see. That was miraculous. It's supernatural. These were the types of verifiable miracles that accompanied Jesus and his apostles. And these things authenticated their ministry. And unlike Doubting Thomas, I don't need to see them to believe. 
Scripture makes it very clear that we don't need supernatural miracles to believe in Christ. The Bible assures us already know that we all already know that God exists. But people suppress that knowledge due to their darkened hearts. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, the scripture tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How? The text goes on. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, having been understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The clear visible evidence of God is right before our eyes every day in his creation. The evidence is in the existence of trees and of flowers and in people and animals. And the Bible doesn't imply that we should demand further evidence in some kind of spontaneous, experiential, or mystical phenomena. In fact, Scripture suggests, as I read from the quotes with Jesus earlier, that we really shouldn't demand those things. So concerning the miraculous, in the next several verses that we're studying in Colossians, Paul is going to provide us first with what is supernatural evidence of God. And a few verses later, which we'll study in a couple weeks, an example of what is not supernatural evidence of God. He's going to give us first an example of what is clearly supernatural, followed by an example of what is clearly not supernatural evidence of God. But before we return to that text in Colossians, I'd like to make this point. Last Sunday evening in our study of Malachi, we briefly discussed God's strict opposition to a practice called sorcery. In Malachi chapter 3, the prophet of God assures Israel that God says, quote, I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. In that study for brevity, I summarized sorcerers as being religious imposters. But as I began preparing for this sermon earlier in this week, I started to ask more probing questions about what that sorcery looked like. What is sorcery? There's one thing for certain. A sorcerer is not a man with a long pointed felt hat with a half moon pasted to the front of it. Sorcery is not like we see Hollywood portray in Lord of the Rings. It's not pixie dust and wands. Instead, sorcery is more accurately defined as that which attempts to imitate acts of God. When you research the root of this Hebrew word sorcery, you can trace it all the way back to Egypt where Pharaoh called upon his sorcerers to replicate authentic acts of God provided through Moses with their own conjured-up magic tricks. King Nebuchadnezzar tried to get sorcerers to interpret his dream. 
And since they were religious imposters with no genuine power, the prophet Daniel had to step in and interpret it for them. In the New Testament, we have another account of sorcery at the hand of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly, that means before the apostle Philip had come on the scene, he was formerly practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. Simon was doing some astonishing things. He claimed to be someone great. That means he was making himself the center of attention. And his performances were being attributed to God. At least they are perceived to have originated from God. But they weren't supernatural. They were counterfeit. We know this because when Simon later saw the apostles performing actual miracles, Simon was amazed. He's like, wow, they are really doing it. This is no act. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the Wicked Witch of Endor, if you remember her back in the book of Samuel. She was having this business or ministry, whatever you want to call it, where she would drum up the supernatural realm. She would drum up ghosts or whatever. And the, the king of Israel, Saul, was in turmoil. He was looking for some help. He wanted to contact the prophet Samuel again, who had died. So he dresses up in a costume to try and trick her that he was just someone common. He goes to this witch of Endor. He tells her, call up for me, Samuel. I need to talk to him. When Samuel actually came up, she was freaked out. She couldn't believe it. She was surprised that something actually happened because the stuff that she was doing typically wasn't genuine. All these sorcerers are examples of false displays of religion. These people did not possess supernatural powers. God was not working through them. They simulated the miraculous either for attention or for money, or for the growth of their audience. From all of this, we can determine that at least one primary component of sorcery is when you find a person conjuring up something that on the appearance looks astonishing. Then they attribute it to God, although it didn't originate from God. God doesn't want credit for it. All across the globe, you can find on television... And in churches and on YouTube, bizarre behavior that is being attributed to God. These are acts that are being said to have originated from the Holy Spirit. But God doesn't want credit for them. Many, if not most, of these activities do not conform to what we observe as clear examples of in, that we see in God's Word. They don't conform to Scripture. They're categorically sorcery. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have first an example of what is supernatural, and then examples of what is not supernatural. 
Today we'll learn what is miraculous, and God does want credit for it. Two weeks from today we'll learn what God does not want credit for. First, let's look at what is genuinely miraculous. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, In Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Writing to the church, Paul says circumcision was not only for Israel. If you're, in, if you're a Christian, you've been circumcised. You say, no, I have not. Yes, you have. The sign of circumcision, which identifies God's chosen and redeemed people, was not a circumcision made to the male organ. There were all kinds of Jews who were circumcised physically, who behaved very wickedly. These people never exercised faith in God, and in the end, they were condemned. Judas Iscariot is one example. Now, no one was ever saved exclusively by that outward ceremonial act of circumcision. There's a similar principle with the New Testament practice of water baptism. Lots of people have been water baptized for various reasons, either social or ceremonial reasons or peer pressure, but they've never been baptized by the Spirit. They've been outwardly baptized in water, but never given their life to Christ. Physical circumcision of all the males in Israel, it, it did possess a whole lot of symbolism. It should have reminded them that was, there was going to be a seed, a descendant of Abraham who promised to come and deliver them. It should have also reminded them of the deadness of their flesh and how sin is, sin is passed from generation to generation and how that sinful flesh needs to be cut off and dealt with. And it should have symbolized to them how our sinful flesh has gone from generation to generation from Adam. There's a diversity of theories about why God used circumcision as this sign to identify his people. Some of them even say it was for hygienic reasons. A lot of these different theories may have some merit, partial merit. But when Scripture tells us how, God, how and why God gave circumcision, then we can know exactly why. In Romans chapter 4, verse 11, the Apostle Paul tells us. He says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Abraham was given this so he could be known as the father of all those who are of faith. Abraham was already a believer who had exercised faith before he was circumcised. Circumcision, Scripture says, was giving, given as a reminder to Israel that Abraham was saved by faith. Does that square with what the Old Testament teaches? It does. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 11, God said to Abraham, 
And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. What makes this interesting is, Abraham had his righteousness attributed through his faith two whole chapters before circumcision was given as the sign. Back in chapter 15, Abraham was attributed righteous. And he was also given the covenant in chapter 15. But then you have chapter 16. And we find that Sarah hatches an idea that she's going to help with this offspring. She's going to help this line of descendants of Abraham. So she hatched a plan to bring in her handmaiden, Hagar. And they began to go down the road to a debacle. Didn't turn out good. Ended up having Ishmael. A whole different line. Where that trouble remains to this very day. The descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. So, two whole chapters before, Abraham's already righteous. So, in response to this this debacle, God decides to restate it. He decides to once again say the covenant to Abraham, promise this covenant that he'll have the numerous descendants. And then God says, I'm also going to give you a sign with it. The sign of circumcision. This is completely a sign of God's promise to Abraham to multiply descendants through faith. It was not designed by God as the physical mechanism to authenticate that an individual belongs to God. If that were so, women would not be able to be saved. Instead, circumcision was a reminder to Israel and to you and to me that God attributes righteousness, both male and female, to those who live and act by faith, like Abraham. If you are here a few weeks ago, you probably remember we discussed extensively the two baptisms, spiritual baptism and water baptism. You can be physically baptized without ever being spiritually baptized. Christians don't establish the fact of their relationship with God and the fact they got wet. It was exactly the same with Israel. They were not supposed to establish the basis of their salvation on the fact that they got physically circumcised. They were instead supposed to base it on the fact that they got spiritually circumcised. You and I do need to be baptized spiritually, and you and I do need to be circumcised, but not of the outer flesh. Our circumcision, Paul says, needs to be that done without hands. It doesn't come at the edge of a flint knife. The circumcision that saves is performed by God. He trims away our fleshly heart that yearns everything that is opposed to him. Flesh here is symbolic of the corruptible part of man, our carnal nature. The flesh represents our desires that are contrary to God. 
And that desire that causes us to want to serve ourselves first and serve God second. That desire needs to be removed. Now, how in the world is that going to get done? This circumcision or cutting away the fleshly heart of a repentant sinner, a circumcision, this text says, made without hands, is supernatural. It is a bona fide miracle. Remember, we read earlier in Romans 1 that the undeniable supernatural evidence of God rests in the existence of his marvelous creation. That's exactly the same principle in spiritual circumcision. God is plainly evident in what has been made in the physical creation. And God is plainly evident in what is seen in his recreation of the human heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, He who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Next to physical creation, what you see around us in trees, flowers, planets, the greatest evidence that God exists that we can see is a sinner who becomes born again and then puts on outward display their love and obedience to Jesus Christ. This change of a heart is called regeneration. It's supernaturally evident. But the world will suppress the truth of that recreation. People will deny it. Just as they suppress the truth of God's physical creation, they will suppress God's work in recreation of the human heart. But nonetheless, this miraculous is visible and it's very real. There was a ministry in Denton, Texas that I would help out with from time to time. It was called Freedom House. And Freedom House was a ministry that was put in place to bridge ex-convicts who were going back into society. There would be a plea bargain with judges in, in that county where if these prisoners would be released earlier, these criminals... They could go into the custody of Freedom House where they would study the Bible for six months and then Freedom House would help them to get a job. They would be a reference for them. So there were around 30 men at this time that were living in this facility called the Freedom House. And I would volunteer there from time to time. Uh, Thanksgiving came and a lot of people were going to be gone and I was low man on the totem pole so they said, well, you do vacation fill-in for us. So... During this eight-hour day where they would hear about Jesus and Scripture every day, I went in during the week of Thanksgiving and would teach from the Bible. I met this man. He'd recently been released from prison. I believe his name was Mike. But that's not real important here. This man, I'll call him Mike. Very strong young man, I'm guessing in his late 20s. Had been in prison for many years. Had a mohawk, shaved nicely on the sides. He had a hex bolt in his ear. That was Zering, was a steel hex bolt with a nut on it. This guy was a bruiser. 
And when I met him there, he was in, I believe, his first week at this place. Tough guy. He's the one that you'd, when you'd ask a question, you'd really wonder what it was going to be, and you're really scared if he got angry, angry with you. Well, long story short, a few months later I was asked to fill in again for the regular teachers, and I went back about six months later where they were going through graduation. And I walked up to this man who was clean cut, hair was combed, looked different but looked familiar, and I looked at him, I'm like, that's Mike. Then I looked at the ear. And by that time, the hole where the hex bolt was had almost healed in completely. And I said, Mike, what happened? He, quote, he didn't say any words. He quoted to me, He who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. That was a miracle. That's what God does to the heart when he circumcises it. And he causes a person to be born again and become new. The circumcision of the heart, it's not only supernatural, but it's nothing new. It's not a New, new Testament concept. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, God says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. God has been working on hearts, performing divine open heart surgery and reconciling sinners to himself from the very beginning. Amen. Romans 2.28 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, meaning not by the letter of the law. Over the time that I've been here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, I've heard many stories, and I anticipate hearing many more, about how sinners, the likes of you, who were dead in your trespasses and were in rebellion against and in denial of God, have learned about Jesus and he's grabbed your heart and he's brought you to a new creation. He's brought you to repentance at the news that his son died for you and offers you new life. And now you come here to worship him, him whom you once denied, and now you and I devote ourselves to telling others about Jesus. Then we struggle to overcome our sinful, sinful tendencies that remain opposed to God. Folks, you are an undeniable, supernatural miracle. Colossians 2, as we continue, in verse 12 says, You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through the faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We've already gone into enough detail about baptism since the beginning of this book. This verse says that you were buried with Christ, meaning you died with him. 
This is what water baptism signifies, that you are telling the world that you are dying to yourself, dying to serving yourself. Baptism is an act of faith where you say to God and to man, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The old uncircumcised heart has been trimmed away. So through that demonstration of faith, this verse says, you are resurrected to new life and a new purpose by identifying yourself with the resurrection of Christ. Verse 13 tells us, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all of our transgressions, This says God made you alive. You and I didn't make ourselves alive. God performed divine open heart surgery on you and me. I don't know of anyone who's ever awoken in a recovery room after multiple bypass heart surgery and then told the surgeon, my, what a marvelous surgery I'd done on myself. The patient doesn't thank himself. He thanks the surgeon. The one who actually performed the surgery is the one who gets praise. Christians assemble in church to praise God for performing such a magnificent heart procedure in our lives. There's a whole lot more. He did not only revive us from the deadness of our flesh, he gave us a clean slate. It says, he's forgiven us all our transgressions. Then in verse 14, he expounds on that topic. It says, God canceled out the certificate of debt debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. These decrees or ordinance refer to the requirements of the Mosaic Law. No one except Christ ever kept the law. So you and I have earned, it says, a certificate of indebtedness from not keeping the law for which we must give account to the lawgiver. This certificate, or chirographon, is described in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament as having been, in ancient times, quote, a note of indebtedness that has been written in the debtor's own hand as acknowledgement of obligation to repay, unquote. This is why the King James translates this certificate of debt as handwriting of ordinances. The law stands against sinful mankind. It lays claim against us in the form of indictments, and it's hostile towards us. But God has now canceled out the decrees of the law against us. In secular practice, this same term, canceled out or blotted out, was used to describe the process of blotting out the ink of an official law that was written on parchment. You see, when they had a law change, they didn't just print up a whole other set of books. They didn't just adjust their website and then hit edit or publish. They had these parchments that they would write the laws on. It wasn't so easy to recreate them. So they would blot out the ink from the law 
when it was no longer in force. Those who, in Christ, who are in Christ, those of us here who have put our faith in Christ, for us, the law has been blotted out. We're not subject to its jurisdiction. Even more so, the same text says that the law is being described as having been taken away. It's gone. We must also take note that this term taken away is written in what is known in the Greek language as a perfect indicative tense. That simply means that the word signifies permanent abiding results. The law isn't coming back. It has been taken out of the way. I've encountered a number of people over the years of ministry who have shared with me that they have become Christians and now they've grown in Christ and they are returning to the law. They said, I didn't when I first started becoming a Christian. I was saved by grace, but now that I am a Christian, I'm going to start observing the parts of the law. I'm going to start observing the Sabbaths. I'm going to start using the dietary restrictions as my guide. It's funny, I've never had any of them say that they're going to start to sacrifice a red heifer. None of them ever go to that. But they say, no, what we are doing, in their opinion, is to become Christ-like, which we're commanded to do, since Christ obeyed the law perfectly, to become Christ-like would mean that we now begin to obey the law perfectly. Problem is, that's not what the Bible teaches. We don't go back to the law. That's what the passage that we're studying today tells us. It's taken out of the way. This is going to be the overarching theme next week as you will see verse 16 and why Paul has said what he says in verse 16. Galatians chapter 3 tells us, But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law had become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith come, has come, Galatians says, we are no longer under that tutor. The law was a tutor. It was a schoolmaster to help us understand our inability to keep it. And therefore, the law has always been intended to drive us to grace and to fall to our knees seeking reconciliation to God through mercy. Returning to verse 14, the imagery concerning Calvary in our certificate of debt being nailed to the cross is absolutely magnificent. When a criminal was crucified under Roman law, it was the common practice to write out the legal charges against that individual and nail it above his head so that those who would pass by would be able to look at that person who was crucified and know why they were hanging there. 
Do you remember what Pontius Pilate said after he had evaluated Jesus and read the trumped-up charges that were standing against him? Remember what Pontius Pilate's words were? He said, I find no guilt in him. They couldn't even pin down Jesus for a misdemeanor charge of rebellion or verbal assault because though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And he uttered no threats against his accusers. So what was Jesus found guilty of? What were the charges nailed above his heads by the Romans in three different languages? What did Pilate have written and nailed above his head? The sign said, This is the king of the Jews. Jesus asserted through his ministry and through his actions and through his words that he was the rightful king of the Jews. And the religious elite hated him for it. So they wanted him nailed to a cross. But that's not the reason that Jesus ultimately was crucified. There was another reason Jesus was crucified and suffered and died. And these are the charges that God in heaven brought against Jesus. Paul reveals in verse 14 the charges that were nailed to the cross above Christ's head. These were the charges that the law holds against every one of us. With its hostile decrees and its guilty verdicts. The scripture says that God took that charge of guilt that certificate of indebtedness that belongs to you and me. And God nailed it to the cross above the head of his son. And he said, guilty. An innocent man, God's only son, died in your and my place. His body was bruised and broken for you. And on the third day, he rose in victory, conquering sin and death forever. And through that marvelous act of redemption and resurrection, Jesus made an utter spectacle of the evil forces of darkness. Christ overpowered sin and defeated death. And he displayed it openly for all the world to see. Verse 15 says, When God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. Jesus won. Satan is defeated. For the Christian who has placed his faith in the Son of God, Jesus said, It is finished. Amen. I'm now going to ask the ushers to come forward so we can distribute communion as we commemorate what Jesus did on our behalf. This is why he came. To defeat sin, defeat death, and conquer an enemy that he knew that we ourselves could not conquer. If you're visiting Port St. Lucie Bible Church for the first time or haven't taken communion here, we practice what we call open communion. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've trusted in Him that 
your certificate of debt was nailed above his head, we invite you to join us in the breaking of bread and the passing of the cup.